In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we love you with all our hearts, and we worship you, Lord, from the deepest part of our hearts. All we want, Lord, as we gather here today, is we want to, to touch you and to hear your voice and, and, and to see you and where you are in our lives, Lord. So many situations in our lives and we can't see you clearly, Lord. We want to see you and we want to see you calling us to your standard of living and, and, and showing us, Lord, the power that you want to give to us so that we can achieve it. Lord, speak to each and every single heart this day and let your spirit to be working amongst us, Lord, and convicting each one of us of the message that you want to give to us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the intercessions and prayers of all your saints. Amen. All right. So I am excited about today, and I know a lot of other people, as I mentioned in the sermon, are kind of sort of very excited and not very excited at the same time. We are going to start a new series here today, and the series is called Not Even a Hint. And I'm telling you that I really believe that God has hand-chosen, hand-picked this series for our church at this particular time for a very, very specific reason. I'll share what that is as we kind of go along. The series is going to be based on a verse from Ephesians chapter 5 that talks about God's standard for our lives. Before we get into the Bible and God's standard, we have a short little video clip, which Mr. Abram, show us that short little video clip about the importance of purity and living undefiled. That might be very loud, though. Be careful. The video, it didn't start yet, don't worry. I'm saying the, the words didn't start yet. Thank you there. So the example there was about water, just about water and about nothing else. But you see, and every one of us understands, exactly what that was talking about. And as I was, I, did, I, I gave myself a little illustration today, even unbeknownst to me. I went to the back here, as I always do after the liturgy, and I wanted to get me a cup of water. So I picked up a cup, and then I looked in it, and then I put the cup down, and I picked up a different cup. And I started to think to myself, that's exactly the point of this illustration. That's the point, is that no matter how nice the water may be here, 
no matter how nice the water may be here, if either of these cups has a little bit of defilement, let's say, I don't know, a piece of bird poop, okay, or something like that inside, or a piece of a kid's spit up, is there any amount of water that you could, like if I got you a big, 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 big pitcher like this, like the biggest pitcher, and just put one drop of bird poop in there, and then filled the rest with water, would that make a difference to you? Would, would, you, would you be inclined to drink from that? Well, here's exactly why we're talking about this series. Here's exactly why we're doing this series here today, because I believe that God wants to pour out great stuff upon us and upon our church. Those who've been here every single week, I've been saying week after week that we're not an ordinary church. We're an extraordinary church who is called to do extraordinary things in the world. And God wants to pour extraordinary grace out upon us. And we want, God wants to use us in extraordinary ways. But God, just like the people in the, in the thing, just like me, kind of looks down at the cup and says, well, maybe I'll go with this cup. And I don't ever want God to look down at our church and say, well, maybe this cup instead of this cup. And even on a more personal level, God looks down at each and every single one of us as his vessels and as his temples and looks down and says, well, I really want to work in this person's life, but, well, I don't know, and that one's got, uh. And what we want to do is to live the kind of lives that God can bless and bless in abundant, magnificent, extraordinary ways. The premise of this series is that there are many spiritual giants who God didn't use because they had small defilements in their life. And because they never addressed those small defilements. For example, who is the strongest man that ever lived? Samson. No one was stronger than Samson. But Samson had a little thing, and that little thing that he didn't address, and I'll talk about this, I'm not saying about how any defilement God can't use you, but a defilement that goes unaddressed, that's what I'm trying to say, and, and un, like, you're not striving to correct it. Samson didn't address this area. And what happened to the strongest man? Became very weak. Who was the smartest man? Solomon. Solomon also had a little weakness. And that little weakness, unaddressed, became a big weakness and messed him up. Another one I think of is King David. Wasn't the smartest, wasn't the strongest, but I'd say he was probably one of the most spiritual guys and most spirit-filled guys. But he had just a little, tiny, little weakness that he didn't address, and that ended up causing him all kinds of problems in life. Because the principle is that no matter how big the ship is, any ship that has a small leak will sink. Y'all remember the movie Titanic, okay? You know the movie Titanic, the big ship? Or not the movie Titanic, the Titanic, okay? The movie was based on the real story, right? <laughs> Y'all remember the story of the Titanic, a big ship that they said God himself couldn't sink. Y'all know the story of the Titanic. It wasn't that this big ship ran into this big iceberg and, and smashed into the ground. If you remember in the movie, all right, that actually all it did was it barely scraped the side of an iceberg and the newspaper report afterwards said that it was small wounds that doomed the Titanic. The wound was so small that even, if you remember in the movie, the people didn't even feel it. They were just kind of going about their business. But what happened, there was a small leak at the bottom. And some people knew there was a small leak, but said, hey, this is a big ship. Who cares about a small little leak? The biggest ship, the smallest leak, the leak wins every single time. Every time. The biggest house, the smallest termite, termite wins every single time. And I'm telling you that the biggest church, the strongest spiritual giant, the little sins, 
win every single time if they go unaddressed. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15. King Solomon says, Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. It doesn't take much to ruin a big vineyard. All it takes is a little fox. It doesn't take much to destroy, like I said, a big ship. All it takes a small hole. It doesn't take much to destroy a big, strong, mighty church. All it takes is one area where the people are going to do like this in front of that area. It doesn't take much to destroy a marriage. All it takes is one person or two people in the marriage having something that, let's just not address this issue. Let's just go around this issue. And it doesn't take much to destroy your spiritual life, no matter how great or how mighty you may be. All it takes is one area where you are not willing to look at what you're doing in that area in relation to God's standard for that area. Never, ever underestimate the power of sin in your life. And when I talk about sin, I'm going to talk about purity, but I'm going to talk about a lot more than purity. Because it could be anything. It could be a relationship. It could be a compromising behavior. It could be a habit at work. It could be anywhere. But a wise man once said that the devil doesn't destroy us by explosion, but rather by erosion. And I believe that's very true. The devil doesn't ex explode your life. He erodes it. And eventually you find yourself in a bad situation. So what we're going to talk about in this series is God's standard of holiness in our lives. And we're going to talk a lot about the word lust. But not just the lust as you think as it relates just to sexual sin. Sexual sin is a form of lust, but lust is much, much bigger than sexual sins. Lust is, if I had to come up with a word, this is going to be our working definition for this series. Lust is any desire that you cannot control. Any desire that you cannot control. Dictionary.com defines lust as a passionate or overmastering desire or craving. A passionate or overmastering desire or craving. It's anything, and it could be anything. It could be your eating habits. It could be your spending habits. It could be your Friday night habits. It could be some work habits. It could be a discipline or a lack thereof. It could be any habit or behavior which is out of your control. Mark chapter 4 verse 19, when the Lord gave the famous parable of the sower with the seed, and he said, I planted the seed in some different kinds of soil. I planted in this one soil and started to bear fruit. And then what happened to it? Mark 4, 19. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The lust of other things, what we're going to talk about here in the series and see how we can not allow that to choke out God's good work in our lives. Lust is the most dangerous of all killers because it is a silent killer. It's the termite in your house that is killing you without you knowing it. That habit or that craving or that desire that's just spiraling out of control and you don't even see it is destroying you in ways that you're going to one day realize, but unfortunately, probably after it's too late. So what we're going to do in this series, we're going to attack it. We're going to attack it together. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, hey, everybody, I found out the solution to all the lusts of the world. Do A, B, C, and D, and you'll solve all your problems. I'm not going to say that, because I don't have that. I wish I did, I don't have that. 
I don't have a foolproof plan, but here's what I really, really, really believe. And I was just telling this to someone yesterday who, like I mentioned in the sermon, was saying, why are we going to talk about this? We've tried before. We failed. We can't do it. I really believe there's power in numbers. And there's momentum here. This is momentum. If I'm on my own and I'm trying to fight the good fight, and I'm trying to fight, okay, God will help me. And God is powerful, and that's great. But when all of us are together, and we're all going through it together, through that journey, through that struggle, there's power and strength in that. Would you agree? That when it's not just me, but now when I turn on the TV, and it's not just me trying to fight that good fight, but here's Avram. Avram says, hey, turn the channel. We don't want to watch that. Remember we talked about it on Sunday. There's power in that. And then when I'm um, at a, a, you know, a whatchamacallit thing on basketball, and we're playing, and we're hanging out, and my temper, and I'm trying to stop my temper, then maybe Michael over here say, hey, 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 cool it. You, you take this, sit this game out. You're getting a little too competitive. There's power and strength in numbers. There's also accountability in numbers as well. That I know that as I'm sitting there flipping the channel, that so-and-so is watching what I'm flipping. And we're all in this together. And that's the way I feel like our church is right now. Our church, God's going to do great things. I told you all I've been telling you all that for the past 10 weeks. God is going to do great things in this church. There's no doubt about it. God's going to use each and every single one of you to do great things. But first, we need to take a step back. We need to evaluate our cup. The, the, some of us, we just want to run out there and do stuff. But now's not the time to run out there and do stuff. Now's the time to take a step back and evaluate. If we're going to take this ship out in the ocean, let's investigate. Let's see if there's any holes. See if there's any leaks. Let's make sure that this ship, again, is not perfect because we're never going to be perfect. But we're at least addressing all the different areas that there could be some holes in. And when we do it together, again, I'm not saying that any one of us is better than the other. But when we do it together, the power of God working in us together will always be more effective than any individual by him or herself. That's what we're going to get to. But let's start where we are. Let's start with a look at our normal experience and the normal experience of me and you in life. And I'll talk a very generic example that every single person sitting in their chairs can relate to this example because this is you and this is me. Every one of us has that one sin. And all I have to say is, you know that one sin. And I look at you in the eye and you think automatically, oh, he knows. Because every one of us has that one sin that we can't stop and that we've tried and that we fought and that we read books and we did prayer meetings and fastings and seminars and, and self-help and everything to try to stop that one thing. It's different for everyone. Some of us it is in the sexual area. Some of us it could be a thought area. Some of us it could be a greed. It could be a pride. It could be a, 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 like an addiction of some sort. Every one of us has that one thing and no one doesn't have that one thing. And the usual experience is we see that one thing and we hate that one thing, but we don't really think we can beat that one thing. And then we hear a sermon or we read a book or we get inspired for some reason. We say, you know what? Even though I failed a hundred times, this time, this is going to be the time. And we get ourselves all psyched up for it. All right, we get ourselves all ready to go, and we're going to beat it this time, and this time's going to be different, and we write a plan, and we pray, and we cry, and we kneel, and we fast, and we do stuff, and we, this time is going to be different. This time I wrote it down, a little piece of paper, and I stuck it up on my computer next to a picture of Jesus, and, and more pictures of Jesus, and Jesus' pictures everywhere, and this time is going to be different. This time I'm not going to fall. This time is going to be different. And it usually is for three or four days. 
Then that fifth day hits. That fifth day is a lot more difficult than the first three or four. And then the sixth day comes, and the seventh, and the eighth. And what happens is you realize the days just keep on coming. And then we fall. And then you have one or two choices. Most of us, well, you have a couple choices. Either you're just going to quit right there on the spot, but that's not likely. Most likely, especially if it's the first time you got, you said, okay, that was just an aberration. That was just a one time. Okay, do over. Remember, do over. This is a do over. Okay, God, just do that day over. Just do over. And then you fall the next day. Do over number two. And then you fall the next day. And after a while, you start to realize you were better off not even trying. Because at least when you didn't try, you had hope that you could one day. But now you've tried and tried your hardest and tried your hardest, hardest, hardest and fail, you feel like a loser. And when you feel like a loser, you behave like a loser. And you say, what's the point of even trying? And you go back and you get yourself comfy now in your sin. You say, you know what? I tried. I failed. Went in Rome. Don't we, I'll tell you what, don't we all do that on, on our diets? Isn't that what we all do on our diets? Okay. And everyone's right now, I just saw many husbands look at their wives. Okay, husband, don't look at your wives now. Okay, don't look at them. It's going to get you in more trouble. She knows that you're talking about her and it's okay. Okay. Don't look at them. Don't we do that on our diets? We try, we try, we try, we try. And then we fall, and then we fall. And then you know what? Let's just stay down while we're here. All right, let's just make a trip out to friendlies and just enjoy our time while we're here. <laughs> Agree with me on this. The defining struggle for our generation is a battle with lust. That is the defining struggle of our, genera our generation. Past generations may be different, but our generation, that's what we struggle with. I promise you, I promise you, Every single person that confesses their sins, every single one confesses lust. The only people who don't confess the sin of lust is people who later confess the sin of dishonesty and lying. <laughs> because those are your only two options. I'll read you an email. A heartbreaking email to me because I know the person. I don't know who I am anymore. I'm so scared. I do what I know is wrong. I have tried to stop. Really, I have. I have cried and sobbed at night. I have prayed and kept journals. I have read books. I am honestly at a loss. I love God, but I cannot continue to ask for forgiveness over and over and over for the same thing. I know I need help, but I don't know how to get it. I know that God has so much more planned for my life than this, but this sin continues to conquer me. You feel her pain? Do you feel that pain? I feel that pain. These aren't just words that I just copy and pasted from Google. This is a real person. And if you're fighting against lust, you know this feeling. The only people who don't know this feeling is people who aren't fighting. It's the people who said, let the ship sink. But the people who are trying to keep the ship afloat know exactly how this feels. It is debilitating to fight and fight and fight and lose. It's easier just to not fight. Like, I'd rather 
Just not even fight and just give up. So that way at least I feel like I didn't fail. But to fight and fight and fight and fight and then lose, it just sucks the energy right out of you, doesn't it? And then you want to pray. But why pray? I prayed 10,000 times. Why? Read the Bible. What's the Bible? Go to church. What's church? It sucks the passion and energy out of you. When you're in this state, you know what the most annoying thing is when you get to this state? When you see someone full of the joy of the Lord, singing and dancing, spirit-filled, and you see someone just so... And you hear a sermon, and I come here and say, look... God wants you to live holy lives and the best lives and He'll give you the power and He'll give you all this. And you say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Because that doesn't have nothing to do with my real life. Here's my question for you. And I, as someone who says those words, am I full of it? Am I making that stuff up? All those verses about power and victory and more than conquerors and, and all that stuff. Is that just nice words that we say? Just teach the kids that and don't tell them? Like, shh, don't tell them it ain't true. When they become 18, we'll tell them. Is that stuff real or is that stuff not real? It's real. And just because we haven't discovered it doesn't make it not real. It just means that we haven't discovered it. And together, we will band together and we will set out on a journey. Together, we will say, God, we want to live that life. And we don't know how to do it. But together we're going to find out. And every week we're going to try to take a step forward. And we're going to go together. So that way if my brother gets weak, I'm going to lift him up. And when I'm weak, he's going to lift me up. And we're going to go together and we're going to make a wall. And we're going to go together. We're not going to run. We're going to take step by step. We're going to go together. And we're going to see the areas where the devil is beating us to a pulp. And the lusts that are taking over our lives, those cravings or desires that are out of our control, and we are going to attack them together. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to encourage each other. We are going to fight together. I'm not saying we're going to win the war tomorrow, but I'm saying we're going to start fighting tomorrow. Let's see how we are not supposed to fight. What are we doing wrong? I believe that we have a problem. Like, let's break this issue of lust down. Let's break it down. There's three areas that we may have a problem with. Write these down. A, or one, we have the wrong standard for holiness. B, or two, sorry, we have the wrong source of power to change. And three, we have the wrong motivation to fight against sin. If any one of these three is incorrect, if you have either A, the wrong standard, B, the wrong source of power, or C, the wrong motivation, you're going to get messed up. You will not succeed. Only when all three of these are working together do we have victory. What do I mean? First, wrong standard of holiness. Usually our desire to be pure or to stop that sin is based more on a self-standard than it is on God's standard. It's based on a standard of, let's speak about me. I'm a priest. I'm a holy man. I should not live this way. You are heathen people. You can live that way. 
I am a holy person, I should not live that way. That's what I tell myself. I look myself in the mirror and say, yes, I love God, God is the best, but even forget God out of the picture, I shouldn't live this way. I should live like this. And this is how my thoughts should be. This is where my eyes should be. This is how my words should be. This is who I should be. It's my own self-standard. And it looks like God's, but it's not God's standard. It's my own standard. Number two, because I have the wrong standard, I usually have the wrong source of power. Because it's my standard I'm trying to live up to, then it's all about my power to accomplish it. So, Abuna Anthony, you should be better than that. Look, this is who you are, and this is how you have to live up to, so try your best. You should be better than this. And I start relying on my own power. And number three, very true for most of us, even though we don't realize it and don't admit it, is that our motivation to fight against sin, while we say, yes, we love God, and we want to please God, yes, that is 100% true. I'm not saying that's not true. The greater motivation, oftentimes, is our desire to please ourselves. Look, the issue isn't, like this person wrote me in this email, let me go back to what they said. They said, I cannot continue to ask for forgiveness over and over and over for the same thing. Who said that? Who said you can't ask for forgiveness over and over for the same thing? Did God say that? Did God say that? No, you said that. It's not that you can't, it's that you won't. Your pride, your image of yourself won't allow you to do it because that's admitting you're a failure. It's not about God is going to be upset at me if I have to confess this again. That's not true. we got to get past that because that's our motivation. We're going to fail because I'm telling you, we're going to have to go on our knees to God more than once and we got to have the understanding that we can go back and he never said, he never said, this is your last chance. Get it right this time or I'm cutting you out of the family will. He never said that. We're the ones who say, no, this time. When we have the wrong standard, have the wrong source of power, and have the wrong motivation, that is a recipe for failure. What we will do in this series is we will go to the Word of God. We will see God's standard for holiness, and we will accept God's standard. That's going to be what we do today. We're going to rely on God's power to do it, not on our own. And our own willpower, while it may be great, can only get you to a certain point. It can never, like your willpower can get you to your standard if it's low enough. But your willpower can never get you to God's standard, especially when we see it, we need God's power. And the motivation of all of this is to be pleasing to God. Even if in front of people, in front of myself, I look bad or I feel bad, it doesn't matter. All that matters is how God looks at me in the end. So, what is God's standard? God's standard is pretty high, so get ready. God's standard is Ephesians 5, verse 3. You're going to memorize this, hopefully, by the end of the series. But among you, there must not... Let's read it together, okay, so you're all awake. Read it with me. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Ephesians 5, 3. It says not that you should be better than average. Not even you should be really, really, really good. God's standard is not even a hint. And like I said, it's sexual sins, but it's more than just sexual sins. It hits any kind of impurity of the thoughts, of the mind, of the words, of the actions, of the relationships, any kind of impurity. And even throws greed in there just to, to make it complete. This is a pretty high standard, don't you think? Like, come on now. Like, let's have a little give and take here. Let's be practical. Okay, so here I am, God. I'm at pretty low. And I know not even a hint. Okay, that's pretty high. Let's 
set like phases. Let's say phase one, okay, is to get to like, you know, uh, 50%. That I'm, I'm pure 50% of the time, and I'm hitting batting 500. And then we'll say phase two, you want to get to this stage. And then eventually, by, you know, kingdom come, we'll get to the not even a hint part. But let, let, let's phase it in here. here. Seems pretty, uh, what's the right word? Tough of God to lay down the law and say not even a hint. Why would God say that? Is God mean? Is God unreasonable? Is God just the fun police? And says, thou shalt not have fun, and any hint of fun thereof? Why does God say this? Let me give you a different example. Let me tell you a story of my son. Let's say my son starts riding his bike. Okay, and he enjoys riding his bike, and bike, and bike, and bike, and bike. And then he drives around, we have a private drive. So you drive around the private drive. All right, and even a little cul-de-sac, it's okay. Sidewalk, that's fine. And let's say he has some friends who decide they like riding bikes on mountains. Okay, up at the top of mountains. And they like to get really close to the cliff and like do kinds of tricks, but you know, they never fall off, but they just kind of get close to the cliff. And my son says, hey, I want to be like them. Can I go ride my bikes with them? You gonna let your son ride next to a cliff? So the son says, no, 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 don't worry. I won't go to the edge of the cliff. I'll just get within, how close can I get? Will you let me get within 20 feet of the cliff? How about 15 feet? If you really love me, let me go within 10 feet of the cliff. If you love your son, how close to the edge of the cliff are you going to let him get to? No son of mine is going to be riding his bike on top of a mountain. Excuse me? You ain't riding your bike on top of a mountain. You stay in the cul-de-sac with the rest of the kids. You're not riding your top bike on top of a mountain. You, he thinks, if you love me, give me freedom to ride close to the edge. I say, no, man, because I love you, you ain't going near that mountain. You are going to have not even a hint of the cliff of that mountain. Not even a hint of it. You're not going to even smell it. And if you can see it, you're going to get beat down just for you being able to see it. Not because I hate you, but because I love you. Not because I want to ruin your life, because I want you to have a long life. Not because I want to make you miserable, but because I want to make you happy. When God says that you shall have not even a hint of any impurity, it's not because He hates us. because He loves us so dearly, and He sees something that we don't see. He sees danger, and He knows this is very, very dangerous. So when you got danger, you don't go near the edge of it. Look, if you got a piece of coal in your hand, I learned this lesson one time, very bad lesson. This is an important lesson. Just because you're holding a piece of coal and it hasn't burned you yet, doesn't mean it's not going to burn you. Okay, be careful of that because they start off and then it spreads. And one time I picked up a piece of coal and I touched it like that and I said, oh, okay, it's fine. And I picked it up and I carried it over here and then while in the process of carrying it over here, it caused a lot of damage. Same way with impurity. Just because you've ridden your bike near the edge and haven't fallen off yet, doesn't mean that you're not gonna fall off. Just because you've, you've messed around with, with living an impure life for some years or some time, doesn't mean that it's not causing you harm and damage and it's not gonna destroy your life just because it hasn't happened yet. You're sitting in a cage with a lion. He hasn't eaten you yet. You're gonna bet he's not gonna eat you tonight when you go to sleep. My love for my son will be shown by my not allowing him to go near the cliff. And God's love for us is in his commandment, his standard, that you will have not even a hint of this because it's that dangerous. 
And we'll talk about, not today, but we'll talk about throughout the series why it is so dangerous and the harm that it causes, any kind of impurity. Not today, but for today we understand that it's God's love for us and God's desire to keep us healthy and give us a full life is why he says, not even a hint. Not even a hint, let's be honest. That's different than the way most of us, that's different than most of our standards when it comes to impurity. You know how we usually live our lives? We don't have a not even a hint mentality. That's what we need to have. We have a diet mentality. You know what a diet mentality is when it comes to lusts? A diet is, look, I know this is bad for me, and I know it's not good, and I'm going to do my best to cut back. Every now and then, a little nibble, like it's just too delicious to never have a nibble. So we just do our best to cut back. Like, some people are eating all these calories, I'm not going to eat all this, I'm just going to have a little nibble here and there. And that's the way most of us live our lives. I don't want to be the most impure person in the whole wide world. You know what I mean? Like, you live a little. That's not the end of the world. Things kind of go. It's because of that that we ask ourselves this question that how close can we get to the edge? We have these like layers of like, I can look at this on the internet, but I shouldn't look at this. I can watch this movie, but I shouldn't watch this movie. I can, a married man, I can talk to this woman in this way, but I shouldn't talk in this way. We have these like limits, okay, or not, not like these standards that we create of like I said, like a diet mentality that like, okay, take a little bit, but don't take too much. Just a little nibble, but don't nibble too much. But God says, not even a hint of any of those kinds of things. He says it differently in Matthew 5, verse 27 to 30. Listen to the severity of God's words and the not even a hintedness of God's words. You have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's not easy. That's saying, what we're saying is, okay, looky, looky, okay, but touchy, touchy is bad. That's what we say. Touchy, touchy, no. Looky, looky, okay. Little window shopping never killed anyone. That's what we say. He's saying, no, window shopping is bad. And I don't accept even window shopping. I don't even accept a little looky-looky. Because a little looky-looky to me is just as bad as a little dewy-dewy. It's just as bad. It's the same in my eyes. And then he goes on to get even more harsh. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Not put it in timeout for a few days. Not cover it up. If it causes you to sin, get it out. Get it out. Why? Because it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. It doesn't sound like God shares our same diet philosophy when it comes to impurity. It doesn't sound like He's as understanding and compromising as we are. That a little bit's not the end of the world. For Him, a little bit is a big, big, big deal. So what that says to me, if your eye causes you to sin, you cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, you cut it off. 
that relationship causes you to sin, you cut it off. If your friend causes you to sin, you cut him off. If your computer causes you to sin, you throw it out the window. God doesn't mess around. And if we're going to be going according to God's standard, we can't be messing around people either. That ain't easy, is it? That's a pretty high bar, isn't it? If you're listening to me and you're saying to yourself, as I said to myself, like I'll be honest, like I'll share, as I'm writing this, I'm like, I can't say this. I can't do this. And every piece of me was tempted to say, yeah, just tone it down a little bit. Yeah, just do your best. Every piece of me wanted to say it. But I just can't look at the Bible and look at what Jesus said and get by with Because eh. Jesus didn't have an attitude. He was cut stuff off. Pluck stuff out. This isn't easy stuff. If you're sitting there in your chair and saying, this is hard, that means congratulations, you're listening. And if you're not thinking that, you're probably not listening to me. Or you don't care. If you're listening, and you're understanding what God is saying, you're saying, I can't do this. And I got good news for you. Here's what I realized. Here's the good news. Here's the best news so far. If you're saying, I can't do this, you're in the right place. Because if you're saying, I can do this, you're in the wrong place. You will fail. It's backwards, I know. The one who's sitting there saying, okay, I can do that, fail. The one who's saying, I don't know what I can do. You're in a good position. Because the worst thing that you can do, look, if God's standard was do your best, if that's God's standard, I would walk out of here, I'd come up with a plan, I would do my best. But when God says the standard is not even a hint, I'm going to put together a plan. I'm going to fall on my knees, fall on my face and say, God, help me. I can't do that. That's impossible. No one can do that. And I'm telling you, if you fall flat on your face, say, God, I can't, you're in good shape. Because that's step one. You guys remember there was a famous book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. You remember that book? Okay, by Joshua Harris. Great book. All right. Maybe you read it way back in the day. You can't insert lust into the dating. Meaning you can't just say, I kiss lust goodbye. I'm just going to do away with it today. Lust is called lust for a reason. Because it's seductive. It's enticing. It's like that piece of cake that just calls out your name. It's like that little guy on there saying, do it, do it, everybody's doing it. You make it feel real. It's that little guy. He doesn't never go away. The cake never stops screaming. And if we're going to be successful in our battle against lust, the first thing to realize is that we can't do it. And we're gonna fall flat on our faces and say, God, help us. We can't do it without you. Said another way, we want to avoid extremes in this series. I want to avoid pride and despair. I want to have quiet confidence in the power of Christ in my life. What does that mean? Pride and despair are the two extremes which we kind of usually kind of ping pong back and forth from one to the other. I can do this. I can never do this. 
No, I can do it this time. No, 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 I can never do this. I'm going to fail you. No, 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 this time I'm really going to do it. No, no, this time it's not even worth trying. And we kind of go back and forth between pride and despair. And pride and despair. Neither of them is success. Both of them is actually the same. It's like if you're driving on a road and you fall into a ditch on the right side, then you overcompensate and you fall into a ditch on the left side. Either way, you end up in a ditch. We don't need pride. We don't need confidence. I'm sorry, and we don't need despair. We need quiet confidence. And why I put quiet Humble confidence in the power of God in my life. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus risen from the dead? Hey, wait a minute. This is an important one. Is Jesus risen from the dead? Yes. Is he alive today? Yes. Is he in your life today? Yes. Then you have hope. That's what I get myself down to. Sometimes I feel like there's no hope. I can't. And then I remind myself, is he risen? Yes. Is he alive? Yes. Is he in my life? Yes. Then there's hope. Because if he's in the story, as we saw a few minutes ago with the story of Lazarus during the liturgy, that gospel was chosen by God, not by me. We read the story of Lazarus for those who weren't here, about how Christ raised him up from the dead, even though after he was dead four days, and there was no hope, and everyone said there's no hope, and he's dead, and he stinketh, and he was no hope for him. Jesus raised him from the dead. Because as long as Jesus is in the story, there's hope. Now, if he's not in the story, then I'm saying even if he had like a, a major cold, nothing would have, would have been no hope. But if he's in the story, then even death, there's hope. There's hope. As long as he's in it, Romans 8.37, I love this verse. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As long as he's here and I'm in him, then I'm more than a conqueror. I don't know how... And I'm not looking and feeling like a conqueror right now. But as long as he's in the picture and in the story, there is hope. Just yesterday, I was, with a, I was at a, a conference for the Indian Orthodox Church just for the day. And I was, I was sharing with them. I said something that kind of made people think. We had a lot of discussions after I was saying how reality is not the same as truth. I've spoken about this before. Maybe you remember me hearing me say this. I was saying how reality is not the same as truth. And we must believe truth, not reality. What's the difference? Reality is what we see. Truth is what we know. Reality is what we see. Truth is what we know. Reality equals I can't do this. Truth is, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Reality may be that your life is no hope. Truth is that as long as he's in my life, then I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved me. You see the difference? Reality versus truth. The reality is, you're a failure. The truth is that you can find success in Christ. Don't let reality overpower truth. Truth is what God says despite the reality that we may see. And in this battle against impurity and against lust, every reality may tell you you can't and you're going to fail and you've been here before and better people than you have failed at this and there's no hope. That may be all reality. That's great. But it ain't truth. Because truth says that today if he's alive, I have hope. Y'all know C.S. Lewis? Anyone ever read the book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? I never read it. No one's ever read it? 
You read it? Okay. C.S. Lewis is a great writer, and I strongly recommend him. If you don't like to read, C.S. Lewis is a very, very easy read. Very smooth, very easy. He wrote a lot of, his most famous book is Mere Christianity. He also wrote this book called The Great Divorce. And in the story of The Great Divorce, it's an allegorical story. You know what allegory means? It means like, it's like fictional characters who represent something else. All right? So like, like fables, kind of like that. So it's a story about a ghost of a man who was afflicted by lust. He was a ghost of a man who was afflicted by lust. And lust was represented by this little red lizard that used to sit like on his shoulder and follow him around and used to whisper in his ear all kinds of sweet nothings into his ear and try to seduce him into committing lust. The man was in between hating the lizard and not wanting to let go of the lizard. An angel came to him and said, I'm going to get rid of this lizard for you. And the man said, yes, I want you to. But I don't know if I can live without him. And the man would say, I hate this lizard. He's destroying my life. But then I've known him so long, I don't really know what life is going to look like without him. And he kept going back and forth, wavering and saying, I hate this lizard, but I can't imagine life without this lizard. Sounds familiar? The lust that we hate, we don't want to get rid of. Anyway, the story goes on. Eventually he reaches the point rock bottom and he says to the angel, I'm done. I hate this lizard. Kill this lizard. He doesn't even kill himself. He just says to the angel, you kill him. Angel grabs the lizard by the neck, smashes him into the ground. And as soon as he smashes that lizard into the ground and he kills the lust, two things happen. The man is transformed from a ghost to a real man. And the lizard is transformed from a dead lizard into a strong, beautiful, breathtaking stallion who the man then rides it and, you know, off into the sunset or into the heavens or whatever. The story ends happily ever after. The point of the story is this, that we always look at it, God's command in terms of what I can't have. And God's standard in terms of what I'm not allowed to and not supposed to. But nothing could be further from the truth. That when God says, I want to break the spell of lust in your life, it is not because he wants, he's against your happiness and against your pleasure, but in fact because he is so in favor of it. And because he knows that as long as you are a slave to this lust, and those who don't remember, I said lust is not just the sexual stuff, it is any desire which is out of your control. As long as you are a slave and is out of your control, you are putting a ceiling, a limit, on the amount of happiness and joy that you will experience in life. But when we break free, and we break free from the bonds of sin and the bonds of lust, we will be able to soar to new heights that we never even thought was possible. We'll reach places in our marriages, in our relationships, in our prayer life, in our church, in our ministry. We will reach new areas that we didn't even know exist. We didn't even know that people lived up here, but some people live up here. And we will live up there once we break free from the bonds of lust and sin. Said another way, God's command and God's standard isn't about what he wants from us, but rather what he wants for us. 
God's goal is not to destroy your desires. Yeah, that's step one. He wants to destroy that desire so that he can transform that desire into a pure desire, a holy desire, and that he can fulfill it in the way that only he knows how. Don't let anyone tell you that God is anti-fun or God is anti-pleasure. God is the maker of all good things. And when God creates pleasure, God d does it for our enjoyment, but to be used in accordance with his standard and with his command. This is so important that you must be convinced of this because if you are not convinced of this, you will fail, I promise you. If you are not 100% convinced that God is for your pleasure and for your joy and for your happiness, you've got to be convinced that when, when, when my dad is telling me, don't do this, that my dad has my best interests and he's looking out for me in a way that I can't really see. You've got to be convinced of that because sometimes the commands will get really tough and, and, and it won't be easy. But you've got to hold fast to the fact that God knows best and wants best for me. I'll read you another quote from a book called a future grace it says this speaking about the battle against lust it says we must fight fire with fire the fire of lust's pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures if we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone even the terrible warnings of Jesus we will fail say it again if we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, we will fail. We must fight it with the massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust pleasure in the conflagration, which means big fired, of holy satisfaction. You all understand what that says? It says that you must realize that when God is asking you to put out this little flame, which is emitting this much pleasure, and he's asking you to put it out. It's only because he wants to put it out so he can fill you with this big old fire over here which can't be contained. And when God is saying, don't do this, it's because he wants you to do this. But you gotta not do this in order to do this. You can't have both fires at the same time. Example that I always give to people in confession, imagine it this way. I'm walking down a road and I'm hungry and I have desire for food. And God says, at the end of this road, I got a steak for you. I got a big fat steak. The fattest steak you've ever seen in your life. Juicy, barbecue sauce, everything. The fixins, everything. But it's at the end of the road. And I'm walking down the road and I say, yes, God, I want it. And here I see a 7-Eleven who's got those delectable little big bites. And I say, you know what? I know, but God, and I just stop and nibble on the big bite. What's going to happen? Ah, okay, I'll get there tomorrow. Because I've appeased myself for a few moments. But the big bite never really satisfies you. The big bite never really satisfies, never really fills you up. Only that steak will. But the only way to get to the steak is don't eat the big bite. We spend our whole life eating big bites. Not even big bites. Old big bites. Stinky big bites. The ones with the warts on top of them. Funky big bite hot dogs nibbling on them. God is promising steaks. But in order to get there, you got to stop there. Or you got to stop stopping there, I should say. This series is not about guilt, it's not about shame. It's not about thou shalt not, you no good little. It's not about that. It's not about, how could you? What's wrong with you? It's not about that. It's about God's promise for pleasure. I even thought about naming the series Promise of Pleasure, but I thought people could misconstrue that and get myself in trouble on the website and stuff like that. So stick with not even a hint.
The point is this. You want to have hope of victory. Don't do it by lowering the bar. We're going to do it by raising the bar. I'll leave you all here with this verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 to 7. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. What I'm doing here is I'm raising the bar. I'm raising the bar for all of us. And we're going to say we're going to live to God's standard. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be something that's going to happen overnight. And it's not going to be something that's going to happen in your own power. We're going to raise the bar of God's standard in our marriages, in our personal lives, in our, in our work, in our relation, in everything. We're going to raise the bar to God's standard of no sexual immorality, no impurity, no lust. Because God did not call us to be unclean like the rest of the world. God called us as His children to be special people, a royal people, a holy people, called us to be sanctified and live that special life and give us a special something which we don't even know what it is, but we know when God gives it to us, it's certainly going to be worth whatever price we paid. Here's my challenge for you today. My challenge for you today is to take this seriously. My challenge for you is to go to God today. If you're married, go with your wife. Or if you're single, go by yourself. Or go by yourself if you're married and then go back with your wife. Whatever. You go to God and you say, God, your standard, I'm going to live for your standard. And even like I said, we didn't talk about how. We didn't talk about why. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. But the first thing is I'm challenging you to lift up your standard of living in life. Because God is raising the bar and saying, you are not like the other kids who play on the mountain. You play in the street because you have something special that's going to happen to you. Raise the bar on what your standard of living is. That's my challenge for you. And when you do that, I have no doubt we will see miracles happen. I really believe that. We will see miracles. We will see dead people raised to life. We will see imprisoned people free. I believe that. And I hope you believe that. Because as we said in the gospel today, what, what Jesus told Martha, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Let's stand for a prayer, please. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we believe with all of our hearts that you are alive today. You are working in our lives. You are working in our church. And you want to do glorious things. You're never a God who settled for anything less than glory and honor. And you chose us, Lord, and chose to use us as your vessels. Lord, we repent for the way we've been treating our vessels and asking you to fill a dirty cup and bring to you a cup that has defilement and asking you to work mightily in it. Forgive us, dear Lord, and help us that beginning today we start like a new phase in our life. Not even a phase that we're perfect and we don't make mistakes, but at least we stop accepting the world standard and we start living by your standard and we say no more to the, to the mediocre life and the impure life and the life that's driven by lust and impurity and greed and all kinds of things like that. Today, Lord, we want to live by your standard. 
We want to strive for it, Lord, and we need you to help us because we don't have any idea how we can actually achieve it. But we know, Lord, that you are alive, you are in our lives, and that we are more than conquerors through you who love us, and that in you we can do all things. We trust you, Lord, we believe in you, and we believe that you will work mightily, mightily through, Lord, in our church and in our lives through this time. Accept our prayers, Lord, and, and, and accept the prayers of each heart that's here today that can't even lift up their heart to pray, that's been failed so many times and jaded so many times that they can't even see that there's any hope for them. Lord, accept the, the, the groanings of their heart, Lord, and the anguish of their heart upon your holy altar. In the name of your Son, who died for us and was risen and is alive in our lives today, and with the intercessions and prayers of all of your saints, make us, Lord, worthy to pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.